You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 258, Gates Takes Command. In the spring of 1780, the revolution in the South seemed to be unraveling. The British capture of Savannah in late 1778, with a relatively small force, made manifest the vulnerability of the Southern colonies. Both sides had largely ignored the Southern theater, deploying few soldiers and a B-team of commanding officers. Southern politicians typically refused to cooperate with the Continental commanders. Generals Lachlan McIntosh and Robert Howe, both Southerners themselves, had been transferred north because of their inability to work well with the Southern governors and other civilian leaders. Washington eventually sent General Benjamin Lincoln of Massachusetts to command the Southern Army in hopes of creating a credible army to secure the region and retake Georgia. Instead, the British captured Lincoln and his entire army at Charleston, South Carolina, after a short siege led by British General Sir Henry Clinton. Following that, both sides predicted that North Carolina, and perhaps even Virginia, might soon fall to British control. With the fall of Charleston and the surrender of Lincoln's army, the highest-ranking officer in the South was Major General Johann de Kalb. The German-born officer who had served his lifetime in the French army before coming to America with the Marquis de Lafayette. Up until this time, de Kalb's vast military experience in Europe had not really been put to the test in America. He did not receive his commission until after the Philadelphia campaign had ended in late 1777. He was in Philadelphia during the Battle of Monmouth. Although he suffered through the winter encampments at Valley Forge and Morristown, serving as a division commander, he really hadn't had any opportunity to prove himself as a battlefield commander. In April of 1780, DeKalb was still commanding a division near Morristown when Washington directed him to take a division of soldiers from the Delaware and Maryland line south to support General Lincoln at Charleston. DeKalb was still in Philadelphia trying to prepare for his march to the south by the time Charleston fell. He finally left Philadelphia on May 13th, the day after Charleston had fallen, but before word of Lincoln's surrender had reached Philadelphia. It was nearly a month later, by which time DeKalb had made it as far as Richmond, Virginia, when he learned that the British had in fact occupied Charleston. DeKalb had hoped that his force of about a thousand Continental soldiers would be supplemented by thousands of Maryland and Virginia militia once word of Charleston's fall motivated the states to turn out in force. Like most Continental generals, DeKalb would be frustrated by the failure of state leaders to provide him with the men or supplies to mount any credible defense against the British Army that was by this time subduing South Carolina 
and clearly aiming at moving into North Carolina. Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson provided the army with almost no supplies and only a few hundred militia. On June 20th, DeKalb's Continentals crossed from Virginia into North Carolina. The army reached Hillsboro two days later and remained in camp there until the end of the month. The promises of supplies and militia reinforcements never materialized. DeKalb had to put the army on reduced rations. So, just to emphasize this point, you had soldiers coming from northern states to help defend these southern states from British attack, and these southern states were not even willing to feed the troops that were there to protect them. The Continental soldiers literally had to go on a starvation level of rations because no one in the states they were defending was willing to feed them. North Carolina officials were focused on feeding the militia that they had called out. The militia leaders, though, did not bother to link up with the Continentals, and no one was providing food to DeKalb's men. Decades of experience in Europe had convinced General DeKalb that supply lines were critical to an army's success. He was hesitant to move anywhere without knowing how he would feed and supply his men. In July, DeKalb tentatively began to move south from Hillsborough. He met with a few militia leaders, including Francis Marion, who had brought his men up from South Carolina. DeKalb was still, though, trying to link up with the North Carolina militia under General Richard Caswell. The North Carolina militia had called up an army of several thousand men. Caswell was a political leader who had been governor of North Carolina until April. Despite his minimal military experience, he had received from the state an appointment as major general. Despite the impending crisis of a British invasion from the south, Caswell made no effort to link up with or even communicate with the Continental Army that was in his state. Following what seems to have become an inexplicable pattern among Southern leaders, Caswell simply ignored the Continental Army there to assist in the defense of his state. He collected supplies to feed his own militia army, but showed no interest in providing any of his supplies to the Continentals who were on starvation rations or pretty much doing anything about attacking the growing British and Loyalist threat building just across the border in South Carolina. A very frustrated General DeKalb continued to write letters to Washington and to officials in Philadelphia that he was receiving no support and had no supplies for his army. This was DeKalb's first independent command in America, and he indicated that he could not succeed with the limited resources at his disposal. The Continental Congress seemed to agree with DeKalb that he was not up to the job. Although experienced this foreign general had become the Southern commander only by accident when General Benjamin Lincoln had been taken prisoner at Charleston before DeKalb could join up with him. Before DeKalb had even entered North Carolina, Congress acted to appoint a new Southern commander. General Washington strongly recommended that Congress give command of the new Southern army to General Nathaniel Greene. By this time, Greene had become Washington's top general. He was even the man that Washington recommended to replace himself as the commander-in-chief should he ever die or be captured. On receiving Washington's recommendation, Congress voted on June 13th to commission Major General Horatio Gates to command the Southern Army. Although most of Congress had come to respect Washington's military leadership, 
many delegates still believed that they knew better than he did. Besides, Green had insulted Congress a few months earlier in his letter resigning as quartermaster general. Many in Congress had wanted to dismiss him from the army entirely. So they certainly weren't about to give this guy an important independent command. When it came time for Congress to pick a new commander for the South, General Gates had positioned himself where he was always most effective. In Philadelphia, lobbying on behalf of himself. Now I know I've talked about Gates extensively in the past, but perhaps this is a good time for a refresher. Gates had been a British officer in the regular army for decades before the war. His family did not have wealth or position, but was pretty well connected with those who did. He had managed to scrape together enough money to buy a commission as a lieutenant in 1745 in time to fight with the British at the Battle of Culloden, crushing the Scottish rebellion there. When the War of Austrian Succession ended, Gates found his regiment dissolved. He decided to head to America, serving as an aide to Colonel Edward Cornwallis, the uncle of future General Charles Cornwallis. In Halifax, Gates assisted with the removal of the French Acadians and the Micmac Indians. He returned to London to lobby for a promotion and ended up purchasing a captaincy on credit. In 1755, Gates joined up with a great number of other future leaders, including George Washington, Charles Lee, and Daniel Morgan, on General Braddock's assault on Fort Duquesne in what would become western Pennsylvania. Gates was wounded in the ensuing massacre that killed General Braddock. Later in the French and Indian War, Gates served as an aide to General Stanwix at Fort Pitt. Later, he participated in the British assault on the island of Martinique under General Robert Monckton and was given the honor of reporting the British victory in London. By tradition, messengers of good news were granted a promotion as thanks. Officers often chose messengers like Gates who were deserving of promotion, but who could not afford to buy a higher commission. As expected, Gates received a promotion to major. But with the end of the Seven Years' War, Gates found his military career stalled once again. He returned to New York to work as a political aide for Moncton, who had been appointed royal governor of New York. After Governor Moncton returned to England, Gates also returned and sold his commission. With the money from that commission, Gates moved his family to Virginia on the recommendation of an old war buddy named George Washington. He purchased a large plantation in what is today West Virginia, and by his mid-forties was ready to settle into the quiet life of a plantation owner. He served as a lieutenant colonel in the local militia, but probably figured his military days were behind him. Gates was not an active voice in the colonial protests of the early 1770s, but as the war began in 1775, he immediately offered his services to his old friend George Washington before Washington left for the Continental Congress. When Washington was appointed commander-in-chief of the new Continental Army, he requested that Gates be given a commission as a brigadier general and made Gates the first adjutant general of the Continental Army. While Gates did have battlefield experience, his main benefit to the new Continental Army came from his experience serving as a staff aide to other officers and an expert in the necessary administrative duties that every army requires. 
he had gained an expertise in seeking promotion through relationships with politically powerful men and trying to be in the right place at the right time. So as I said, Gates was one of the first brigadier generals and then was very quickly promoted to major general in early 1776, based primarily on his administrative skills in organizing the Continental Army. But Gates knew that he needed a field command to establish himself as a leader. He spent a great deal of time in Philadelphia trying to develop friendly relationships with the delegates at the Continental Congress. He succeeded in establishing a powerful fan base among many of the New England delegates. Gates convinced Congress to appoint him to command the army in Canada early in the war, replacing General John Sullivan. But by the time Gates actually made it to Canada, the army had been pushed back into New York. That started Gates's feud with General Philip Schuyler, one of the few generals who was actually more senior to Gates. Schuyler had command of the army in New York, and now that Gates's Canadian army was in New York, he fell under Schuyler's command. Gates and Schuyler tried to work together for more than a year. When Gates got frustrated, he would leave his command and personally return to Philadelphia to lobby Congress to replace Schuyler as commander of the Northern Army. At the end of 1776, Washington begged Gates to cross the Delaware with him and attack Trenton. Gates refused, assuming that Washington's attack would not succeed. Instead, Gates rode to Baltimore to be ready to lobby Congress for command of the Continental Army once Washington had failed. Of course, Washington's victory upset those plans, and Gates moved back to Plan A, getting Congress to dump Schuyler and give Gates command of the Northern Army. When news of Schuyler's loss at Fort Ticonderoga in 1777 hit, Gates was still in Philadelphia, ready to lobby Congress once again for his proposed change. This time, his lobbying worked. Gates took over command of the Northern Army just before the battles that culminated in the surrender of General Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. I've argued that Gates was primarily the beneficiary of all the work that Schuyler and others had done to make that victory possible. I've also argued in earlier episodes that the victory was due primarily to the efforts of General Benedict Arnold, who had to defy Gates' orders in order to defeat the British. Gates, ever the politician, had ended what had been a pretty good relationship with Arnold because Arnold took on several of General Schuyler's aides after Schuyler lost his command. Gates saw this as a disloyal act that made Arnold a competitor to his power. Therefore, Gates did not want to give Arnold any position that might increase his stature or reputation. After Saratoga, Gates went out of his way to ignore Arnold's contributions to the victory. Congress gave Gates full credit for the victory at Saratoga. Many in Congress began discussing the possibility of Gates replacing Washington as military commander of the Continental Army. Gates' victory at Saratoga was contrasted with Washington's series of losses that had led to the British occupation of Philadelphia. Although Washington remained military commander, Congress appointed Gates as chairman of the Board of War, which could essentially give orders to Washington and tell him how to use his army. Some in Congress thought this might end up convincing Washington to resign. Washington, however, fought back politically and shrewdly, eventually allowing events to show Congress that Gates wasn't really that impressive. 
Following this tussle with Washington, Gates's star seemed to fall a bit. He remained head of the Board of War, but the board had essentially lost its authority. Gates also continued in command of the Northern Department, but after the surrender of Burgoyne's army, there was not much action in that region. The main threat came from small raids by Loyalists and Indians, and Washington had offered Gates command of the campaign that would stamp out those raids, but Gates demurred, allowing General Sullivan to lead that campaign instead. Washington then assigned Gates to command of the Eastern Department, which is New England, in 1779. Again, there was really nothing going on up there militarily, so Gates ended up just going home to his plantation in Virginia. When the British threatened Charleston in early 1780, Gates headed back to Philadelphia to provide military advice and once again lobby for a new command. Congress obliged and appointed Gates the new commander of the Southern Army. For Gates, this was a wonderful opportunity. He once again had an independent command in an important theater. A great victory would give him the opportunity to show up Washington once again and prove that he was the greatest military leader in the Continental Army. Gates attempted to convince Colonel Daniel Morgan to join him on this campaign, but Morgan had resigned his commission about a year earlier. Despite being such a critical leader in so many battles, Morgan never played the political game to get ahead. Congress had continually failed to promote Morgan to general. Years in the field had left the aging colonel with so many aches and pains that he decided to hang it up and retire. When Gates tried to bring him out of retirement, he was having none of it. Gates was well aware of the challenges to victory in the South. He knew about the lack of money, supplies, and men, the lack of cooperation with the state governments, and the success the British had had in recruiting more Loyalist regiments in the South. Although Congress had granted command to Gates in mid-June, nobody bothered to inform General DeKalb, who was still making his way toward the South Carolina border. When he finally received notice, in the form of a letter from General Gates on July 16th, DeKalb actually seemed relieved that he would no longer be in command. DeKalb was not confident of his situation and was loath to try anything without having the proper resources available to him. While he was more than happy to serve under General Gates, he did not want the responsibility of command under the conditions that he faced. DeKalb was probably further relieved by Gates's reassuring letters that he had been in close contact with Congress and Governor Jefferson of Virginia and that they would provide support that the Army needed. Gates finally caught up with the Army on July 25th. The forces under his command were not promising. With the arrival of the Virginia militia, Gates still had less than 2,000 soldiers. Various units and individuals fleeing British-controlled Georgia and South Carolina had traveled north to join up with his army. But still missing were the North Carolina militia under General Caswell. Gates's army spread out to make use of resources throughout the region, but were on starvation rations and had no sufficient ammunition or supplies for a military campaign. The army also had only 50 cavalrymen, which were often critical to southern campaigns outside of the larger towns. None of these shortcomings, however, seemed to phase General Gates. After a peremptory review of his new army, 
Gates ordered his officers to prepare the men to march immediately into South Carolina. Gates specifically wanted to hit the British outpost at Camden. DeKalb and many local officers recommended marching to the west through Salisbury and Charlotte. The land in that area had a much stronger patriot sentiment and also had much more food and water available for an army on the march. Gates disagreed and instead chose a much more direct march toward Camden, one that would go through the heart of Tory strongholds and where there would be very few resources for his army. He told his officers not to worry about the lack of food, that wagons with food and rum would catch up with the army soon. This was a lie, and Gates knew it, but he used it to reassure his officers that his plan would work. Even on the direct route, the march would take at least a couple of weeks. Over the objections of just about everyone, Gates began marching south with an army still on half rations through a region described by some as a desert toward the British outpost at Camden. Next week, the Battle of Camden. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Knox Press. Go to knoxpress.com to check out the latest book releases. Thanks also to Theo Speedy, Derek Diltz, and Diane Ward for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I appreciate everyone who helps to support this podcast and to keep it free for those who cannot support it, and also largely ad-free. I'm going to host another American Revolution Roundtable on November 15th of this year, 2022. Our speaker will be Dr. Maxine Lurie about her book, Taking Sides in the Revolutionary War. It's a look at how locals dealt with the back and forth of British and Patriot control of the state and how people ended up picking one side or the other. I really think it should be an interesting talk, and this is going to be our last live event of the year. You can join us in Mount Holly, New Jersey, or participate online via Zoom. I will send out more details via my mailing list. If you're not on the mailing list, 
please get on it. You can find a link to join my mailing list on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Now, this week I discussed how General DeKalb made an attempt to reassemble the army after the loss at Charleston and did not do a particularly good job. DeKalb really didn't speak much English, and despite serving in the Continental Army for about three years by this time, still understandably felt like an outsider. His main benefit was to advise a leader based on his years of experience as a commander in the French Army. The only reason command fell to him was that all senior officers in the Southern Command surrendered at Charleston and became prisoners of war. Cue the arrival of Horatio Gates as the new commander. Now, those of you who follow this podcast know that I've never been a fan of Horatio Gates, and much of my feelings about him is probably covered by what happens after he takes this command and what we'll get to in the next episode. But without the benefit of that hindsight, Gates was a hero to many, especially in Congress. He had won the biggest victory of the war at Saratoga. He had used his considerable experience in supply and logistics to benefit the Continental Army. His biggest negative was that many officers saw Gates as a threat to Washington's continued leadership of the Army, thus leading to the tension in late 1777 that we called the Conway Cabal. No one was really arguing that Gates was a bad general. Quite the contrary, his successes and his reputation made him an alternative to Washington as a commander. The officers wanted Washington. At the same time, many political leaders thought Gates was the man who could finally end this war. Giving Gates the Southern Command offered him another opportunity to prove himself. If he had succeeded, we might have seen a second movement to replace George Washington with Horatio Gates. History, however, moved in a different direction, as we'll see in the next episode. There is no good biography devoted to Horatio Gates, and that's really a shame. As disagreeable as I find him, Gates probably is one of the most influential officers in the war, and certainly being disagreeable is no reason not to have a biography, or there would not be dozens of Benedict Arnold biographies. Gates led an interesting life and would be absolutely worthy of his own biography, and I hope someone rectifies that soon. There is, however, a good biography about General Johann de Kalb, and that's my recommendation this week. It's a book called De Kalb, One of the Revolutionary War's Bravest Generals, by John Beeks. It's an interesting look at this German-born officer who spent his career in the French army before joining Lafayette in America and giving his life for his adopted cause. The author is a former naval officer who went into another career as a corporate officer in tech companies, but he's also written a number of interesting biographies on several different lesser-known officers from the American Revolution. This particular DeKalb biography may be hard to find. I don't think that there were that many printed, and quite frankly, I got mine as a prize in a trivia contest. There are a couple of copies on Amazon, though they are not cheap. Still, if you're interested in General DeKalb specifically, I think this book is worth getting. My online recommendation is a magazine article called Gates at Camden by John Stevens. This is a magazine article that was written in 1880 for the 100th anniversary of the battle. It was originally published in the Magazine of American History, and it has about a 25-page description of the battle, 
followed by nearly a hundred pages of correspondence between Gates and others, both before and after the battle. It also includes all of his written orders to the army during that time. So lots of really great primary source material. The article is available on archive.org, and as always, I've included links on my website and blog. My question this week asks, why were the rebellious British colonists called patriots? I like this question because it also gives me an opportunity to address some criticisms that I've received by calling the pro-independence Americans patriots. The term patriot today is almost synonymous with the phrase good guy in any story, meaning one might think I'm showing bias by referring to only one side as patriots, meaning I'm saying one side is good and one side is bad. That's not why I use the term. I use it because it was the term that was in contemporary use during the time of the revolution. The two sides called themselves patriots and loyalists. If you referred to someone at the time as a patriot, there would have been no misunderstanding that you were referring to them as someone who supported a government independent of the king. Now, given that contemporary usage, I thought it appropriate to use that term in my episodes. Some other authors use the term Whigs and Tories to describe the two sides, and that's perfectly legitimate too. But since those terms are less familiar today, I've largely avoided them in favor of patriots and loyalists. Now, beyond all that, the term patriot meant something very different in the 18th century than it does today. As I said, in modern parlance, the term patriot connotes good and simply means someone who loves their country and acts based on that sentiment. In the 18th century, the term patriot meant someone who was willing to fight for the true leader of a country in difficult times. So, people who fought for the restoration of Bonnie Prince Charlie during the Jacobin era considered themselves patriots. Men who fought to restore the king over the takeover of Oliver Cromwell considered themselves patriots. Men who sought to restore the House of the Stuarts after the House of Hanover took the throne considered themselves patriots. So, use of the word patriot denoted that the current government was somehow illegitimate. A patriot was someone fighting to restore a legitimate government over some interloper. The colonial leaders took the name because, in their view, they were seeking to restore traditional English liberties that were their birthright. They viewed Parliament as attempting to alter the government structure in some fundamental way that would take away these traditional rights. So, in resisting, they called themselves patriots. The term patriot was often used derisively in Britain at this time, referring to people who were unwilling to accept their government and were fighting for some impossible change. Even so, although the American leadership called themselves patriots, the British typically referred to them as rebels. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on social media. I'm pretty active on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast 
dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.